few people laughed, few people cried, most people were silent. If you can't take a little bloody nose, maybe you ought to go back home and crawl under your bed. It's not safe out here. The butcher took an IQ test and the results came back negative. But he was a brilliant scientist. How many other lies have I been told by the council? Just when I think you've said the stupidest thing ever, you keep talking. I do plan to finish someday, Kiff. Because I can live with it. Sure, Jim. I can live with it. Man's got to know his limitations. Am I a good little guy? Hey, the end credits. Well, it was a terrible movie. At least it was short. Right. These are the beginning credits. Oh, well, then kill me, please. <laughs> please. Historical Diversions Epilogue Merriam-Webster defines epilogue as a concluding section that rounds out the design of a literary work, a speech often in verse addressed to the audience by an actor at the end of a play. Well, I'm not an actor and I won't be talking in verse, but I felt epilogue was the best word for this sort of thing. I wanted to find a place for ideas, unanswered questions, half-baked thoughts, and tidbits that I couldn't fit into a nice little narrative. I'd use the word miscellaneous, but then I'd have to spell it. It's also an excuse to put out some, frankly, easier content. The first thing I wanted to bring up that sums up the Cahokia narrative, and the podcast in general, is everything takes forever. If anyone says to you that starting up a podcast is quick and easy, good for them. But more likely, if you give a damn, then it takes a little bit of time. For me, it took about a year of, I want to do a podcast, setting all of that up, then doing the research for Cahokia in particular. And I found out that I took a lot of time on the Cahokia topic in order to do the site justice, and I'd like to think I accomplished that. I actually didn't know about Cahokia at all until about a couple years ago when I watched Ed Barnhart's Ancient Civilizations of North America Great Courses series. I had WWE Network as one of my streaming services, but when they went to Peacock, I wasn't really interested in anything they had to offer other than WWE stuff. I've heard mixed reviews about it since. I was looking at the lecture courses available on The Great Courses Plus, it's now renamed Wondrium, and I saw Ancient Civilizations of North America. The description mentioned the third largest pyramid in the Americas in North America, and I was astonished at my ignorance about Monk's Mound and of Cahokia in general. I thought I was familiar with a lot of ancient civilizations uh, from Graham Hancock's work, history documentaries, among other things. I don't read or watch uh, much fiction anymore, but I had never heard of the Mississippians. Outside of the Anasazi and the Iroquois Confederation, I looked at the Native Americans north of Mexico the way that most people did, and probably still do, as the semi-nomadic Plains Indians, a narrative that came in part from Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. The Mississippians weren't like that at all, and many Native cultures weren't. It was a narrative that had some truth to it for some groups, but either didn't paint the whole picture, distorted it, or was flat out made up. So the more I read about Cahokia, the more I wanted to tell people about it. 
frankly, I kept wanting to say this is the coolest shit to anyone who would listen. I mean, Native American city, the population size of London in America's heartland. I mean, how do people not know about this? Nobody I knew had ever heard of it. Wasn't taught in any history class I had, but how do you teach history when there's no written records and we're still trying to figure out what's going on there? Didn't really fit the preconceived notions of Native American civilizations. Hopefully, that's changing the more we learn. I actually lost count at how many sources I ended up using. Check out the show notes on our website, historicaldiversions.com, to see them all. As I said earlier, I really wanted to do the site justice, and so I felt an obligation to go into more detail than I thought I would, to give Cahokia the treatment I feel it really deserves. And so the sources kept coming in. I ended up finding some journal articles on a website called academia.edu, and I made the mistake of having them send me emails with related articles to what I'd previously read. It wasn't until I started recording part one that I had to literally force myself to slowly stop reading. Suffice it to say, I probably won't be using so many sources for the next episodes, or (laughs) at least I hope I won't. I actually finished scripting and recording on September 1st for a September 1st release date, but it wasn't until the next week that I consolidated all the sources into something readable. I hope to not do as much of that in the future, but never say never. When I was done, I ordered a few little things from the Cahokia gift shop to treat myself, and also because the gift shop has never been open when I've been to Cahokia. More on that later. My order came the night before this podcast was due. And I recorded this on September 15th, for a September 15th release date. Is it really procrastination if you get everything done on time? Gotta stick to that self-imposed schedule. There's one topic I never got a chance to bring up during the Cahokia series. Uh, It didn't really fit into the story I was trying to tell. In 1054, there was a supernova that was visible from Earth. It was documented in Chinese, Japanese, Islamic, and even possibly European sources. It's called SN1054. Creative, right? There was also an ancestral Pueblo illustration in New Mexico that might reference it too. But before I go further, what is a supernova? This gives me an excuse to talk astronomy. A star is formed by the coalescing of huge amounts of material under the force of gravity. Hydrogen fusion creates a massive release of outward explosive pressure and energy. A star's normal life is the balance between the outward expansion and the force of gravity trying to collapse it. Elements like helium and carbon are also created by nuclear fusion in the stellar layers and core, and this gives off enormous amounts of energy as well. When a large star can no longer resist the force of gravity, like when the stellar core becomes iron, the star rapidly collapses under its own weight. The fusion of iron takes energy, it doesn't release it. In a type 2 supernova, the gravitational force inward is so great that the collapsing material actually rebounds off of the core after collapse and explodes with a massive amount of destructive energy. Think of a star hundreds of times larger than the sun collapsing to the size smaller than the earth in less than a second. The physics involved is insane. Funny enough, when the layers upon layers of material rebound outward, that's how natural elements heavier than iron in the periodic table are created. The remnants of this huge explosion are visible today with the telescope. It's called the Crab Nebula. This is one of the largest supernovas on record, and would have been hard to miss for anybody looking up. 
archaeologist Tim Paukatet hypothesizes that the Cahokian leadership noticed and used the supernova as a divine endorsement of their political power, and that contributed in part to Cahokia's explosion. The problem, made clear when I spoke with archaeologist Ed Barnhart, is that the timeline may match up, but it's incredibly speculative, and it's not really provable in Mississippian art the way that it is in the records of the Chinese. By the way, you should check out my History Over Drinks episodes with Ed Barnhart if you haven't already. He was a really cool guy to talk to, and I think I'm going to be hitting him up for another interview if he can swing it. So now I'm going to take the podcast down to earth and turn it into a little travel blog. I pretty much roped my wife into going to a lot of Native American mound sites on our road trips. It's an excuse to see new places, and many of them are incredibly scenic. I've been to Cahokia three times, and I'm going to try to find time in the next year or two to go again. I've been there twice with my wife during December, and I'm in awe of Monk's Mound every time I go. The grounds themselves are really well kept. The mounds, stockades, and woodhenge recreations are really interesting to see in person. Mound 72 is just as unassuming as it can be for what it contained, and the trails are wonderful to walk around. But the last time I went to Cahokia was in June 2023, by myself. In addition to making the rounds around the protected park, I decided to find Rattlesnake Mound, because it was the next largest earthwork after Monk's Mound, since the Powell Mound is destroyed. It's not in the protected park, so I decided to play Explorer and go for it. It's in Google Maps, and it seemed like an easy walk. I didn't find this out until doing research for the podcast series, but Rattlesnake Mound is on privately owned railroad property. Turns out I was probably trespassing, but I wasn't caught. This will come up later. I tried to drive to Rattlesnake Mound, but then it became obvious that I was on a private road, clearly not meant for normal vehicle travel, with jagged rocks the size of my fist. Since I was driving my wife's car and I didn't want to wreck it, I decided to walk. Google said it would take me about 20 minutes to walk from where I parked. Google was wrong. Turns out, dodging oncoming trains, walking around ponds and marshes, tall grasses and weeds, can dramatically affect how fast and far you can go. Go figure, right? With the large amount of tree cover, I was relying completely on Google to find this mound for me. I couldn't see where I was supposed to go, and I wasn't dressed for hiking. I brought no water and I was walking toward a site that was literally named after a nest of pit vipers that harassed excavators. Did I mention that I was alone and nobody knew what I was doing? Yep, I was doing everything right. After about an hour or so hike on a nearly 100 degree day with no cloud cover, I finally found Rattlesnake Mount. I'm pretty sure. I saw the trench that Warren King Moorhead's expedition in the 1920s dug into the mound, but if I hadn't seen that, I honestly wouldn't have known this mound different than any other small hill with trees on it. After walking on it, I can understand how people didn't think Monk's Mound was man-made prior to the modern-day preservation efforts. There were a lot of four-wheeler tracks. Those people were probably the smart ones. But I don't think many people bothered to make that trek like I did. I walked back on a separate set of abandoned train tracks to avoid what I experienced on the way there. I'd rather not get hit by a train but I almost collapsed from heat exhaustion because it was an even longer walk back. Lesson learned, always bring water. Far easier walks are found in the trails around Effigy Mounds National Monument in Iowa, 
We went there in the winter of 2021. It's a well-manicured park that is managed by the National Park Service, uh, unlike Cahokia, which is managed by the state of Illinois. The burial mounds, while not at all like Cahokia's platform mounds, can be distinguished from the surrounding area, though I have a hard time seeing the animal forms from the ground level. A lot of woodland burial mounds are far less distinct than effigy mounds. On another road trip in the spring of 2022, we went with one of our good friends to Skillet Creek Indian Mounds and Woodland Mounds Preserve in Iowa. These mounds, if they weren't marked by signs or had a different type of vegetation growing on them, would easily blend into the natural wooded landscape. It's no wonder that many of the ones that remain are so far off the beaten path or in specifically designated parks. Many of the more easily accessible ones were destroyed when farmers needed more usable land for their fields. There are a lot of effigy mound sites in Wisconsin, I'm told, but that's for future road trips. One mound site that is really close to those who live around the Twin Cities is Indian Mounds Regional Park on the east side of St. Paul. Ironically, I lived about 15 minutes from this park and never knew it growing up. You can tell the city of St. Paul has tried, but the site has had some issues in the past and frankly still does. Every time I'm there, the parking lots reek of marijuana, with people getting high in their cars. And the first time I was there, I'm pretty sure I saw a drug deal go down not 50 yards from the mounds themselves. It's actually one of the times I understand the protective fences around the mounds. If they weren't there, who knows what nonsense would be done to them. These are burials. A sign at the site said, please respect this place. And I wish people did. But before I fall off my high horse, let me get down on my own. Another site that has Mississippian connections is Manitou Mounds in Canada. It also is known as Kei Wanang, or Place of the Long Rapids, and it's owned by the Ojibwe Nation. It's a really breathtaking site just off the Rainy River in Ontario. We made a road trip in late May of 2023 into Canada specifically to go to this site on May 21st. I checked the official website, and it was open for the season on May 11th, so we were good to go. We drove up to the site, and the gate is down, and nobody is there. It was a Sunday, well after May 11th, so it should have been open. I checked the official Facebook page, and they stated that they would be open on May 27th. I got confused. I thought my brain was short-circuiting. I checked the official website again, and the site was open on May 11th. 2022. Now, this is embarrassing for me to admit, so I'm going to do it publicly on my podcast. We traveled far, and we collectively decided to roll the dice and enter the site where it was clearly marked that cameras monitored the area. And I'm glad we did. Questionable morals aside, the grounds were amazing, picturesque. We walked on the main trail at a very brisk pace, and I got the feeling we were being watched, but we kept on going. At the end of the trail, after having about 15-20 minutes of contemplation of the magnificent views, and after about an hour or so at the site, we got taken off the property by security. The guy was surprisingly really nice uh, when we talked with him, and he actually pointed out some sights while driving us out on a golf cart. I think he realized we were just a couple of dopes who didn't mean any harm. I would not recommend trespassing, and it's actually a low point for me because I'm a big believer in not trespassing on private property and in tribal territorial sovereignty. But we did what we did. There was actually a Facebook post on their page on May 21st that referenced us in an indirect way. By the way, their website still has the 2022 date. 
Just throwing that out there. Next time I'm in the area, I want to check out the site again, and I'm going to make sure it's open this time. As Talon in Wisconsin and Plum Bayou, formerly Toltec, mounds in Arkansas, are probably the most equivalent sites to Cahokia that I've been to, but they're not on Cahokia's level by any stretch. Plum Bayou was almost a prototype Mississippian settlement, with the large burial and platform mounds right by a body of water, the appropriately named Mound Lake, and it's about 45 minutes from Little Rock. It's hard to ignore that when Plum Bayou declined prior to 1050, that's when Cahokia started expanding, and Plum Bayou pottery styles have been found at Cahokia too. Though at the museum, they seem to downplay the migration and influence on Cahokia. Not really sure why they wouldn't emphasize it. On the day my wife and I were there, there was a dense fog that I thought would ruin any pictures. But by the end of our visit, the fog had lifted and we could really appreciate where we were walking. Aztalan was a Mississippian settlement off of the Crawfish River and rose and fell around the same times as Cahokia. It is right by the small town of Lake Mills in Wisconsin. It's a cute little town and I was happy we were able to swing by Aztalan on the way down to Cahokia and Plum Bayou Mounds during Christmas break in 2022. When my wife and I went to both places, it was winter, and the difference in summer and winter weather in Wisconsin and Arkansas is stark. I thought Aztalan was pretty in the winter, but it would be nice to walk the grounds when there isn't three feet of snow on the ground. The last Mississippian site I've been to is Dixon Mounds in Illinois, about a couple hours northeast of Cahokia. I hit it up on the way back from my last Cahokia trip in June of 2023. It was out of my way, and I think I was the only person there that day that wasn't an employee. Beautiful grounds, and it's worth visiting if you're in that area. Since I haven't been in the Interpretive Center at Cahokia, I can't speak to what's in there, but I did see the one at Dixon Mounds. While it was interesting, one aspect that was disappointing was that there were a lot of half-empty displays due to the site being in compliance with NAGPRA. NAGPRA is the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act, and it was passed in 1990. Essentially, the reason there were so many empty spaces in these displays was that they previously contained grave goods or human remains that had since been returned or repatriated to descendant communities, if a museum takes any federal money, they need to be in compliance with NAGPRA. I probably don't need to tell you how horribly Native American graves have been treated in the U.S. historically. If you want to look up a really bad Mississippian example, look up Spiro in Oklahoma. I have yet to go there myself, but it should show up in the dictionary as the definition of looting, and a story in itself. In short, when they discovered a royal tomb, arguably one of the most unique and well-preserved tombs in all of the Americas, they broke into it, they took everything of value out of it, and then destroyed it when they were done. Despite my embarrassing adventures at Manitou Mounds, I'm a big believer in tribal sovereignty, like they should be treated as completely separate national entities. But to my surprise, many of them are not really considered as such. In the U.S., they're more like weird hybrids of U.S. federal, state, and tribal authorities. You would think that for something like human remains, it should be straightforward to repatriate, right? Well, the problem is, like in many things, the devil's in the details. Who's a descendant? Who's culturally related? How far back does it go? Who gives the final say, and how is that determined? What if multiple groups claim the same sites? Those types of questions complicate that process, 
and it can be a long time before disposition gets figured out. I've heard the argument of, how would you feel if your ancestors' bones were dug up and put on display? And it's a valid point. But for me, once we get to the great-grandparents and further back, I don't even know who those people are. And to me, it really doesn't matter. I would actually learn more about them if they were in a museum. But that isn't an attitude I would expect anyone else to have, especially if I had had a cultural history of victimization, desecration, and sacrilege from the same groups of people who want to do the digging today. Remember Effigy Mounds? The superintendent of that site for 20 years pled guilty to stealing some 41 human remains from the site in 1990. This was only discovered in 2011. They were found at his house, not in a display or in a place of honor, but in a detached garage, in garbage bags, within a crappy-looking cardboard box. His reason for this? To avoid compliance with the soon-to-be-passed NAGPRA. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, what a scumbag. But on the opposite end of things, and it is worth mentioning, if we hadn't excavated and studied human remains and grave goods, we wouldn't know a lot about many ancient cultures and human history in general. Egypt, anyone? And not all descendants revere their ancestors. The British Museum has gotten a lot of flack for not returning artifacts to places like Egypt and Iraq, Iraq being ancient Mesopotamia. Well, if the British Museum had returned artifacts they took from the city of Nineveh in Iraq, they would have been destroyed many times over by the Islamic State in the 21st century. The massive Buddhas of Bamiyan in modern Afghanistan were destroyed in 2001 by the Taliban, these statues were actually carved uh, in the side of a cliff face and were so huge that they could have never been removed. And I don't think anyone would argue that they were safer where they were destroyed. There are many examples of this sort of thing. There's also historical precedent for looters who themselves are descendants to grave rob and sell what they find on the black market. Happens all over the world. How? Well, because they know the area. They know where everything is and can find people to sell it to who are willing to buy. Grave robbing has been an issue in Egypt for as long as there have been royal tombs. The workers that constructed these tombs knew uh, how they were constructed and what treasures were inside. Even the threats of torture, death, eternal punishment, and supernatural curses didn't deter them. Crazy, right? There has been a lot of black market dealings of antiquities in the past but thankfully, as time goes on, it's being pushed further and further outside of the mainstream. Is there a right answer to this situation? Hell if I know. It's a controversial topic, to say the least. There was another exhibit at Dixon Mounds that I want to tell you about before I wrap this up. There was a photo exhibition called Interrupted Journey, a photographic journal of bird rescue and relationship by Nora Moore Lloyd. It gives a photographic glimpse of bird rescue and release in and around Chicago. I love songbirds and have a soft spot in my heart for many birds in general, and it was unexpectedly emotional to see this exhibit. I'll post the links in the show notes as you can access the exhibit online, but seeing it in person was very moving. I wasn't aware of it when I drove to Dixon Mounds Museum that day, but I was really glad I got to see it. Interrupted Journey is also a hint of what the next narrative episode or episodes is going to be. 
It might be a little bit, but hopefully I can make this process a little more efficient so I can pump stuff out faster this next time around. Outside of a couple of exceptions, this is a one-man operation. I do have some fun interviews coming up, so stay tuned. Hopefully you enjoyed a little peek behind the curtain. If you're interested in seeing some of the pictures of the sites that we've been to, hit us up on social media and we'll post some. Thank you for listening, everyone. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to Historical Diversions. If you enjoyed this episode, your feedback would be greatly appreciated. Five-star reviews, positive comments, and even just telling your friends about us helps. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., but the mothership is historicaldiversions.com. You can find show notes, ways to support, and other fun info on there. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was written and produced by your host through Historical Diversions, LLC. Any other rights belong to their respective owners.